0: Welcome to the 1CA Podcast. This is your host, Jack Gaines. Today we have Mr. David Maxwell, who is a senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies and a senior fellow at the Global Peace Foundation. David is also a senior advisor at the Center for Asia-Pacific Strategy and editor of the Small Wars Journal. On this show, we will discuss U.S. strategic competition with Russia and China, so stay tuned.
1: You know, the fundamental point is that we we have always thought very Clausewitzian. War is politics or policy by other means. But for our adversaries, it is politics is war by other means. And this is really an ideological war that we're in, just like the Cold War. I hate to say that, you know, Cold War 2.0, people argue about that. But really, it's right. an ideological-based war, you know, that, that's fundamentally between closed societies and open societies. We really have to, to listen to people like Mao. Mao said... That uh, politics is war without bloodshed, and war is politics with bloodshed. And so everything is political. That's really the foundation. But we tend to, to look at political warfare just like the president said the other day. He wants to end his political warfare with the Republican Party. Political warfare is not domestic partisan politics. Political warfare takes place on the global stage. It is the competition among the uh, revolutionary powers and the open societies, the modern nation states, to protect the rules based international order, to make it work for all states. You know, whereas the revisionist powers and the rogue powers really attack that system and either seek to change it for its advantage to support authoritarian governance or seek to destroy it and replace it with their own authoritarian based governance. And so we really have to understand this form of warfare. But we are, we are so risk averse to the use of influence, of uh, psychological operations, public diplomacy. And of course, it extends to the problem that some PSYOP officers uh, said to me at Leavenworth a few years ago when I was out giving a lecture. And I've, I've often repeated this, and I'll say it again, that it's easier to get permission to put a hellfire missile on the forehead of an enemy than it is to get permission to put an idea between his ears. And that's really a fundamental conflict that we have in our strategic thinking. We are much more willing to go kinetic than we are to use influence.
0: Do you think that's because the the bad examples? I mean, there's some great examples of putting ideas between people's ears and having success. People forget about those. They always remember things like the Shah and Iran and how we built that concept that if we can build an open society... It'll shift the Iranian culture to support that ideal more. But then it went sour with the revolution. And I think that our political leadership are still from that period where they saw most of the ideas that we forwarded overseas went sour. What do you think of that? And also, do you think the United States is responding to political warfare with economic warfare?
1: We have a history of you know, meddling in others' affairs as China would would accuse us of. And so we've had a lot of attempts to do that. I would say though, that you know, we need to to think about less about trying to meddle in others' affairs, but give other people options. You know, we can't really control political outcomes in countries and, and change those countries. And we certainly should refrain from trying to change countries uh, to be like us. However, you know there are you know, inalienable rights. There are universal human rights. There are the natural state of of the human, if you believe about it, he wants to be free, you know, and and, uh, and so there are things that we should support, uh, which is, of course, you know, the sovereign nation state, but most importantly, the right of self-determination. I mean, that's the principle that our nation is founded on. And, And what that means is we should not be trying to export our system we should be supporting allowing people to develop their own systems in accordance with their history, customs, tradition, culture, uh, and you know we we shouldn't be imposing our system. Now I think that eventually countries will come around to wanting to be democratic, uh, but of course there's competition with authoritarian rulers and, and things like that. So therefore we do have to consider supporting resistance movements, and helping those who want to help themselves to free themselves. You know, we should be able to do that. However, we, we can't be going around the world and just trying to change systems. or trying to turn Afghanistan into a Wilsonian democracy. That's just not feasible. And, uh, you know, and of course, you look at our invasion of Iraq, which were rested on the foundation that if we got rid of Saddam, that democracy would break out through the Middle East. That didn't happen. But that doesn't mean we, we shouldn't be competing in the political warfare realm. The second part of your question was about economic warfare. You know, we do use the economic instrument of power in, in a very hostile way, and those are primarily sanctions. And that seems to be our go-to. You know, it's almost like we've used the military so much that uh, we want to have an alternative strategic method. And so now it is all about sanctions. And so we we place a lot of emphasis on sanctions and, you know, do sanctions work or not? You know, like anything else, no single element of power instrument of power can be successful on its own. And, and I would think what is really missing between the use of the military and the use of, of the economic instrument of power is the informational instrument of power. You know, and that's where we really fall down. We're very willing to use the military. We're very willing to use the economic Instruments we have, but we are reluctant to use information because, you know, this is the essence of everything. It's about influencing human behavior, it's about influencing decisions, uh, whether they're strategic decisions by national leaders or they're individual decisions by the local population and how they're going to respond to different events and, and activities or actions by their government. And so we really pay information the least amount of priority, and it's really should be the most important. I titled one of my lectures, you know, we have to learn to lead with influence and that's where we should be focused on. But we're very risk averse and, and we're, we're also, I think it's a, a product of our low self-esteem. You know, just recently, of course, the Department of Defense was, was taking a task for some, you know, attempt at psychological operations. You know, this is where we really we really fall down. We like to chase the shiny thing. We want to do some covert action. You know, we want to use... Uh, you know, these these covert means to try to influence populations. The the weapon of the Cold War was actually truth. That was really our, our great strategic advantage. And we use that to great effect. And it's just simply telling the truth uh, to populations. And we did it through myriad ways, you know, using entertainment, using, you know, news, using all kinds of of techniques that were you know not nefarious, not covert. Right. Uh and, a... and this is the exact quote from, from John Collins. He said, Truth in the final analysis has proved to be America's most important Cold War special operations instrument. It exposes Soviet falsehoods if and when discovered and publicizes US foreign policy national defense positions in positive ways. Now we're fortunate we have Voice of America, we have you know Radio Free Asia, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. We have elements that do that. That's their job is to publicize U.S. foreign policy and national defense positions in in positive ways. Uh, What we too often don't do is follow the dictum of Sun Tzu. And Sun Tzu says that what is of supreme importance is not to win without fighting, although that's important. It's to attack the enemy's strategy. And, And this is where we really fall down because we need to do four things. First, we need to recognize our opponent's strategy. Second, we need to have a deep understanding of what their strategy is, what they're trying to accomplish. Third, we have to expose it. You know, if we expose it, we can inoculate populations to that enemy strategy. And then fourth, we have to attack that strategy. And we attack that with superior information, the truth. And so these are the things that we have not been doing well. And and part of it is because we really have no national level organization focused on political warfare, focused on campaigning in this space between peace and war, the so-called gray zone. And I would also argue political warfare is irregular warfare. And it is military activity short of combat operations. And so, you know, this is what we really need. But of course, as you've alluded to, you know, everything seems to fall to the military to do. And, you know, as John Kirby used to say when he was the spokesman for the SECDEF, you know, the military, DOD, is a planning organization. That's what we do. We plan, we plan, we plan. And and he's right. We don't have comparable planning capacities in our other agencies. And that's why there's always an imbalance. Unfortunately, the other agencies just don't have the, the depth of personnel to be able to put against those problems. And therefore, we are in a constant state of reaction.
0: Right. Well, one thing I've noticed is the GEC originally was supposed to be that that information front for pulling together all the agencies, setting up a messaging and influence campaign and managing it. And actually, the conflict with ISIS, Brent McGurk, he was good. He, he did a good job of rallying all the agencies, trying to keep both the conflict side of it as well as the influence side going. And I sat with him at Washington Institute and we talked about when ISIS was in cert Libya and we were getting ready to push him out how we could promote that as a strategic pivot in order to detract any kind of support from coming in in the Middle East. And so he got it. It's just, unfortunately, I think that the GEC has become too DOD-focused and IO-focused. They forget about the public campaigns. They forget about the economic and political campaigns that have to go. And eventually, I would hope that they you know, reconstitute that bigger picture stuff. I think they just need someone who's a visionary to to lead it that way.
1: Yeah, the, the initial focus was really counter ISIS and and the violent extremist organizations, which unfortunately is too narrow a focus. You know, it's important. And, you know, that's one line of effort. But at the national level, you know, we've got to deal with the entire range of threats and, and competition. And we just haven't done that. Now, people will call for reestablishing the U.S. Information Agency, um, you know, which sounds like that was a great thing. Uh, During the Reagan administration, we had the Active Measures Working Group. We know it was specifically designed to counter Soviet disinformation. All of these elements had good things about them, but we've never really had the national level ability to design and orchestrate and implement campaigns. And, and of course, the, the one thing that Matt Armstrong, who's one of the smartest guys on this uh, on, in this area, you know, he will argue that this can only be effective if we have national level leadership. And that's really what is lacking. During the Cold War, uh, that's when we really did things pretty well. And we had national leaders that were focused in these areas. You know, today, I worry that we're not focused enough on this. Now, that said, <laughs> these are probably the most complicated times, you know, since World War II, but it takes intellectual rigor and deep thought and a, a desire to really use all our instruments of power in a synchronized fashion to protect our national security.
0: Sure. So one, one of the questions I've been asking around and getting speakers on is the integration between civil affairs, CIA field ops, USAID, states, public diplomacy, what are your thoughts on 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 ground outreach?
1: Well, on the ground, we do tremendous stuff. I mean, I, I've I've been amazed at the uh, the work that our tactical forces do in countries, you know, and the, and the effects they can achieve. And so, I think that we have a lot of great military personnel out there, and, and intelligence officers, foreign service officers, development officers out there, really tremendous. However, again, where it falls down is the strategic level integration of effects there. You know, I'm being very critical here, but I'm also very appreciative of the new national defense strategy, because one of the pillars of it is we have to be able to campaign and that we are going to campaign day to day and campaign in this zone, And that's really, really important because we need the ability to plan and develop campaigns and we need irregular warfare proficient campaign headquarters. And that's that's where we fall down a lot because we just tend to use what we have, you know, a core here, a division there. And uh, or clues together a joint task force, and it'll always be built around one of the services and their conventional forces. And they really haven't been organized, trained, equipped, and optimized for irregular warfare. The new Army's FM discusses irregular warfare in a pretty good way. And it says the Army supports joint force commanders, but it recognizes that only Army SOF is really optimized for irregular warfare activities. Others contribute, as they can and should, but they recognize in army doctrine that it is army soft, that is the only force that's optimized for irregular warfare. Well, if that's the case, you know, perhaps we ought to be looking at soft-based irregular warfare campaign headquarters. And I think when you look at Syria, that has kind of borne out. You know, General Cleveland uh, really designed it that way, you know, that we would have a division-level campaign-capable headquarters for irregular warfare campaigning. You know, we can have multiple campaigns taking place around the world, and I think Syria has has been a good example of that. Now, back to your point, if you could develop interagency campaigns, I think you would generate greater synergistic effects on the ground. But because of the relationships we build among the interagency, we could really improve their capabilities. I mean, as I said, I think they do great work at the tactical level, but oftentimes that work is not synchronized, not orchestrated, and we could do better if we had irregular warfare campaign headquarters.
0: If we were to go for a major campaign like a counter-China influence campaign, Do you see that as a JIADIF-style organization or an NSC interagency working group? How would you construct it?
1: Yeah, well, I think you need to have an NSC interagency working group. And the reason for that is China is conducting global operations. And this is also, we have to rethink how we look at our geographic combatant commands because we tend to focus on, on geography and geographic location. But China is operating in every combatant command around the world. They're in Africa, in South America, in Europe, in the Middle East, and, you know, and throughout Asia. So we have to be able to transcend our geographic boundaries, which constrain us. And of course, whenever you create a boundary, it's going to create a gap in a seam, you know, and a coordination problem. So, you know, you can either organize geographically or you can organize functionally. You know, that function would transcend those geographic boundaries. When you look at things like foreign area officers... So you send a foreign area officer to Africa, well, they learn the French or, or a local language. Well, what about the large presence of the Chinese? Do they need to understand Chinese? Or do we need to send a combination of African and China FAOs to Africa? And so what we need to do is to have an interagency effort to help these countries to be able to exploit the resources that China is providing, but protect them from the debt trap diplomacy. You know, We see what happened in Sri Lanka with the port. That's a classic example there. Now, could our Commerce Justice Treasury have provided some advice to Sri Lanka? Either don't take that deal or here's how you got to structure it. Exactly <laughs> or bought well. the debt and
0: yeah. had control of the, of the port and yeah. made China crazy. Yeah, that would
1: have been right. great. And so so those are the <laughs> kind of things we need to be thinking about because, you know, a, another port for China, you know, is of is great benefit to them. You know, that's inroads in the Indian Ocean. If we want to free and open Indo-Pacific. Are we properly competing to uh, to keep it free and open? You know, I would say that that's one strategic failure of a free and open Indo Pacific. I
0: have no doubt that India sees that as a strategic pivot between China and their border
1: issues, and then having a port at their south side. Absolutely. So those are the kind of things that we need to be looking at, and and maybe we are, but frankly, I'm not seeing it. We, we tend to write a lot of strategy and there's a lot of goodness in our Indo-Pacific strategy at the White House, our national security strategy, our national defense strategy. But, you know, too often we write these and then we admire them. You know, we admire all these strategies and we are not disciplined enough to drive execution of those strategies or to develop campaigns that are based on those strategies. And so that's where the discipline of, of national level leadership is really required.
0: David, this is really great. Now, off-mic, you discussed your time in the field and how your team had to plan against a national strategy and also fight through authorities. So can you take a moment and discuss that?
1: One of the things I'm most proud of, and, and I learned a lot from General Dave Friedovich when he was the commander of 1st Special Forces Group, I was the commander of the 1st Battalion. We went to the Philippines, and first thing we did was conduct an assessment from the national level to the tactical level. And, and from that assessment... You know, working with our our Philippine partners, we developed a campaign plan. And in that campaign plan is the ability to train police. You know, that usually falls to ISITAP and USAID. But we knew that we weren't going to get the resources. And so we wanted that authority uh, to be able to work with not only the military, but the police as well, because it was so integral to the the counterterrorism and counterinsurgency fight. And so we put that in the campaign plan and that came back as approved. And we had the authority to train their police. So, you know, rather than saying, well, we don't have the authority to do that, we say we need the authority to do it. And right. and we put it in the campaign plan. Uh and when you develop a campaign plan, from that, then you, you know, to execute uh, assuming our our leaders uh, approve executing that plan, in that plan should have, of course, what resources you need and what authorities you need. And too often we start with well, what authorities do we already have? What programs are already in existence? And how can we couch them together, clues them together to uh, to do what we think we want? And and so we're always using band-aid solutions rather than starting from ground zero. And and so this is what we really need to do is to to look at the at the problem, you know, conduct a thorough assessment, which is something that's soft. Should be making a huge contribution. The the ability to conduct an area study, area assessment, target audience analysis, or civil reconnaissance, civil information management, all of those capabilities that exist within uh, within SOF should be contributing to estimates, to strategic estimates, uh, and you know from which we can derive campaign plans from. All right. I think I've used up enough of your time, sir. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. This was enjoyable. I was like, uh, you know, I like talking to somebody who's interested in these areas here <laughs> you know, to, to, get a, to get a kindred spirit on, uh, on these issues. So.
0: Thank you for listening to the 1CA podcast with your host, Jack Gaines. I want to give a quick shout out to retired Colonel David Maxwell for coming on today. David also spoke on Korea policy and strategy. So stay tuned for that episode. If you are interested in coming on to the show, contact us at capodcasting at gmail.com. I will have that email and David's bio in the show notes. Lastly, if you haven't done so, please like and share the show with your friends and leave us a review on Apple Podcast so others can find us. 1CA Podcast is a production of the Civil Affairs Association.